Hello, family. Good to see you. Grab your Bibles, open them up. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. We're going to pick it up where we left off last week. Uh, we've been in this little subsection of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is interpreting and applying the law of God to various situations. And today he covers everybody's favorite topic, marriage and divorce. Yay. Aren't you glad you came to church? Actually, you may be glad you came after you hear this. Um, we can't really understand what Jesus is teaching in these uh, two verses uh, unless we bring in what Matthew records later in chapter 19 because chapter 19 gives us a fuller context that lets us know Jesus is addressing divorce in a particular uh, situation. And so we're going to read both of those passages today, but first I want to frame our expectations today with these two statements. Number one, um, I'm not going to cover uh, every possible scenario uh, where divorce could be permitted by Scripture, like abuse, abandonment, and, and other things. I only have a little bit of time. I only have time to deal with this one teaching of Jesus. Okay? Uh, second expectation. Doctors have to take what's called the Hippocratic Oath, which is do no harm. And I think pastors should have to take that too. Um, that's my heart, and I want you to know that. That's my intention uh, today with such a difficult and, and frankly traumatic uh, reality for many of us. I'm not here to add hurt or to add shame or to add guilt to anyone, okay? My intention is to teach the truth in a way that does no harm and by God's grace might actually open the door for flourishing and healing. Remember, these messages are, are ultimately all about human flourishing, right? And so I hope just those two expectations will put your heart at ease. And so with, with, with us framing it that way, please give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. Matthew 5, 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Matthew 19, 3 through 9. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you. We thank you for being a God of truth and being a God of love who cares for us. 
Please come now and open our hearts to what you have to say, that we might live and we might flourish. We ask it in Jesus' good name. Amen. And I'm getting some feedback up here, just so we know. Um, It's easy to come to these verses with this notion that Jesus just decided to go up a mountain and randomly teach on like a bunch of topics. But all Scripture was written to address particular problems. In fact, that's what 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us. All Scripture was written to talk about specific problems that all people have. And these Scriptures in the Sermon on the Mount, they're no different. Jesus lived in a patriarchal society in which men literally believed that they were superior to women, superior in their intellect, superior in emotion, and their value in a society. And so here's the problem that Jesus steps into and addresses, okay? This is the context. Men were abusing a division, a divorce provision in the Old Testament that was meant to regulate divorce and actually protect women. In other words, men were abusing the law by following the letter of the law. And that's sneaky. Kind of like finding a tax loophole. Following the letter of the law. So in other words, they had this external rightness. That's what righteousness means. Doing it the right way. They had this external righteousness that kept the law, but it did not come from a heart that wanted to keep the intent of the law. The purpose of why that law was written. And this had led to a uh, rampant divorce culture among the Jews because husbands could claim they were divorcing their wives biblically based on a legality. And the women alone bore the damage of this divorce culture. It was widely embraced and accepted. It was everywhere at this time. See, here's the big idea, guys, for the message. Jesus exposes the heart of this divorce culture by giving us a universal first principle, like a fundamental principle, and then by giving us a situation-specific application related to divorce. And so we're going to look at both of those parts today, this universal first principle, and then we're going to look at that situation-specific application. But before we dive into that, we need to understand this principle of Bible interpretation. A passage of Scripture cannot mean to us what it never meant to the original audience. Are you tracking with that? An understanding of Scripture, a passage of Scripture, cannot mean to us what it never meant to the first hearers. Otherwise, it'd be nonsense to them. You understand the logic of that? So let's put this slide up. I'll give you some examples. There's a game, uh, if you can't see this, is uh, Jesus and Peter playing basketball, and it says, Peter denies Jesus three times. He swats the ball, right? All right? You've heard that phrase, Peter denied him three times. And the other one, God's doing uh, laundry. He's whistling and doing laundry, and it says, and God separated the light from the dark. All right? Look, same words that we would use today, right? Same grammar, same syntax, okay? Different setting. Different historical setting, right? 
So we need to look at both of these things here. We must start with understanding the historical setting and only then apply that understanding to our current situation. Make sense? This is like basic, basic Bible interpretation. Okay? That's like $500 worth of seminary credit. You guys just got free tuition. All right? You're welcome. All right, so let's start with the first part here, this historical setting. Jesus is speaking into a Jewish male-controlled divorce culture. This is the historical setting part. Now, you may have noticed that Jesus only addresses men in this particular teaching. Did you notice that? And he also did the same thing last week when speaking about adultery, if you guys were really paying attention. There's a reason. There's a reason. Married men literally had control over their wives, both in a legal sense and in a cultural sense. They could treat them like property if they wanted to. They were, there were no other life options for a young woman other than to be someone's wife, and then hopefully, by God's grace, a mother and grandmother. So even if she did stay single her whole life, it was not a good life. It was not a flourishing life. Just let that situation sink in. Let that sink in. And all the implications of that situation. So let's go to Matthew 19. Matthew 19, uh, he gives us more context and actually more evidence of this, of what Jesus is addressing. In Matthew 19, verse 3, it says, And the Pharisees, who are the Pharisees? They did everything the right way. And our, our righteousness has to exceed their righteousness or we'll never enter the kingdom, right? The Pharisees came up to him, that's Jesus, and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? For any cause. They're not asking that because there's like just different ideas about that. That's what everyone understood. You can divorce your wife for any cause. Where do you stand on that, Jesus? They're trying to get him in trouble. Just like whenever pastors have to preach about this. Like, you're going to make someone mad, probably. And that's what they want to do. The, in other words, this is evidence that the cultural norm at the time was that a man could divorce his life for any cause. According to this provision that's found in Deuteronomy 24. You can go look it up. They could divorce their wife for any cause so long as the man filled, literally, as, as long as he filled out the right paperwork, served it to his wife in the presence of other witnesses, and he claimed that she had done, quote, something indecent. That's what Deuteronomy 24 says. That's the clause. As long as she's done something indecent towards him. Bible scholar Leon Morris says this, quote, in Moses' day, divorce evidently did need regulation. That's because everyone was doing it. And it was possible for a husband to reject his wife and put her out of his house. But if she tried to contract marriage with another man, and there was little future in a patriarchal society for a woman not attached to some man, then a mischievous husband could claim that she was still his wife. Okay. Legally, there was nothing she could do about it. And so when Moses took note of the, the ills that could be done towards women and provided for divorce, he was giving the repudiated wives a little measure of protection. 
he was giving the wives a measure of protection, close quote. This provision was for the women, not the men, to bring some equality. Now, however, by the time Jesus comes into history, this something indecent provision, this something indecent clause, that had been stretched and pulled to mean anything that made a man's life difficult, anything that made a man's life unpleasant. Okay? And the Mishnah records that that actually was the case. There's records of this all in the Mishnah. The court, that's a Sanhedrin, the court ruled that a man could divorce his wife if she spoke ill of his mother. Watch out how you talk about your mother-in-law. Right? uh, He could divorce her if she burned his meal, even accidentally. Or she embarrassed him socially. She spoke back to him in public. One rabbi named Akiba, he interpreted Deuteronomy 24, he interpreted this something indecent clause to mean that she found no favor in his eyes. He could divorce her if she found no favor in his eyes. Which meant that if her figure changed over time and the husband found another younger woman prettier, he could divorce her and still righteously follow the law of God. If, in other words, if the wife did not please her husband, if she did not get in line with his plan for their lives, he could divorce her so long as he followed the proper legal procedures and filled out the proper like paperwork. And then the man gets to easily remarry. The woman, however, would be looked upon as an adulteress. That's why Jesus is using these words and these teachings. She was looked upon in society by the other men and women as an adulteress. And she would have an incredibly difficult time finding another husband to care for her. Do you see where the burden is being placed? Leon Morris makes, again, another very interesting historical discovery. He says, quote, it was accepted. It was accepted throughout Judaism, that a man had the right to divorce his wife, though a woman had no such right to divorce her husband. In some circumstances, she could petition the court, and the court might direct her husband to divorce her, but even then, the actual divorcing was done by the husband. Close quote. We need to understand what a vulnerable fragile situation that the culture, the courts, and get this, the religious establishment created for women. We really need to get this. Jesus is is speaking into a specific situation, a Jewish male-controlled divorce culture that did not bring flourishing to the lives of generations of women be they single, married, or divorced. And he's bringing a correction to that. And so when these Pharisees come and they ask Jesus about the legal grounds for men divorcing their wives as the way it was accepted for any reason, right? Jesus will not enter that debate on their terms. Did you notice that? He's going to enter that debate, but he's not going to enter that debate on their terms. Jesus, rather, is exposing the entire debate by saying it's starting at the wrong end of the hallway. 
they are debating these righteous uh, Pharisees. They're debating how to prop up and fortify a divorce culture within the letter of God's law and still look externally righteous while they do it. That's what their debate is. That's what their concern is. And where do you stand on that, Jesus? And Jesus is saying, look, you're starting at the wrong end of the hallway on this entire discussion. You got your pants on backwards, guys. You're burning energy on the wrong topic. Jesus is saying this. You should be talking. You should be burning energy and discussing and debating how to produce life-giving, human-flourishing, beauty-producing marriages that tell the truth about God in the world. Jesus is saying, look, when marriage, he's telling the Pharisees, when marriages that tell the truth about God in the world is your focus, when that's what you're trying to understand, listen, you won't need to adjudicate so many uh, divorce scenarios. And guess what? You're not going to clog up the court system. And you people, you as people who claim to be the teachers of God's law to everybody else, you Pharisees, you should know that's your job. Do your job. Jesus is using this rabbinic method of argumentation. It's called the more original, the more weighty. The more original, the weightier. Okay? The Pharisees are starting at the divorce provision about marriage. That's how far back they go. Deuteronomy 24. Jesus says, I'm going even further back. I'm going back to marriage. I'm going back to Genesis 2 because the more original, the more authoritative. That's what he's doing. You see this? And so from that point, Jesus gives uh, us a this universal first principle, right? Original purpose, original principle. And it's this, a husband's first responsibility is to work at becoming one with his wife. Amen, indeed. A husband's first responsibility, this is the first principle, is to work at becoming one with his wife. Let's go to the text. We're going to be in chapter 19, verse 4 through 6. And Jesus answered, have you not read that? See, he's going to go back to the more original, Genesis 2. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So right there, he's going to, he's talking equality. They're both of the image of God. Have you not read that? And then he goes on, he says, and then therefore, because they're equal in value, this is the next part of this, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So, okay, here's the first principle that Jesus lays out. There's three pieces to it. God, this is the first principle. God has said that a man's first responsibility is to leave, hold fast, and become one flesh. Yes, both spouses are to do this, but the primary focus is on the husband. He addresses the husband. And so let's break this down into these three pieces. Let's talk about the leave part. 
when a man marries, the most bedrock relationships in his life are to forever change. From that day on. That's what God says. That is what the law says. Don't you like the law of God? I do. The law is good, Paul says. It does not matter the dreams that his dad had for his life. It doesn't matter the dreams that his mama had for his life when he married that girl. It doesn't even matter the dreams that he had for his life prior to marriage. What his, wa- what his wife wants for him and what his wife needs from him, that matters most now. It's the most report- Outside of a relationship with God, that's the most important relationship now in his life. According to the law of God, the Old Testament, the highest allegiance is now to his wife. That is why people used to, when they gave their vows, said, and forsaking all others. You're to forsake men, you're to forsake all other relationships now. It comes from here in the Bible. Now just imagine with me, imagine the kind of environment that that would create for a woman who is learning how to be a wife because she doesn't know how. She's learning how, how. Now, years later, she's learning how to be a mother. How, imagine just how safe she would feel in that environment. Imagine how safe and secure she would feel hitching her life to a man that was willing to leave everything that he held dear for her good and her flourishing. I think she would feel pretty good about that. Husbands, I need to ask you this question. Husbands, what relationship have you not entirely left yet? Who have you not forsaken for your wife yet? Like, are you still living in reaction to something that your dad did when you were a teenager and you say, I'm never going to be like him? Well, your dad still has control over your life then. He does. You still listen to your boss's voice because you believe your boss loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and your career? Is that the voice you're really listening to and making decisions? Or how about your work buddy? Or your drinking buddy? Or your fishing buddy? Or your golfing buddy? Instead of listening to the voice of your wife that was given to you as a gift. Listen, husbands, what allegiance is vying for your allegiance to your wife? Listen, listen, listen. You need to leave that. So says the word of God. Okay. Let's look at the hold fast part. The word for hold, pa- hold fast is literally cling to her. Cling to her. Not hold loosely, hold fast. See, there's this negative stereotype, it's still around today, that women are clingy and women are needy, but men are not clingy. Men are strong and men are independent and we don't need anybody. That's kind of a general cultural stereotype that is still around. Listen, God commands husbands to cling to their wives. The King James says, uh, leave and cleave. 
But God is not commanding some kind of type of neediness from men. Rather, he's commanding a type of stickiness. That's what cling, you know, that stretch cling wrap? It's not needy, but boy, is it sticky. That's what cling means. Cling wrap. That's what the Hebrew word actually means. And by the way, that word in Genesis 2 is the exact same word in Hebrew that Job uses when he says, my bones have stuck to my flesh. They're so tight together, there's no muscle. It's skin and bone, and they're, my, my skin is stuck. It is clung to my bones. And what is your wife, according to Genesis, except bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh, skin of your skin? Right? Husbands are instructed by God to hold fast, to be sticky. Stick to your wife. Notice the direction here. The onus is on the husband. The husband is to stick close to their wife. Husbands are not to instruct and teach their wives to stick close to them. That's controlling. It's not flourishing. And Jesus is all about flourishing. A husband's first responsibility is to is not to hold fast to his career or hold fast to his promotion or hold fast to his hobby or hold fast to his vision about the future that he thinks God gave to him. His first responsibility is to hold fast to his wife. And then all those other things come into play. Imagine a world like that. Imagine a society like that. Imagine creating that kind of marriage, that kind of environment for your wife. What do you think might happen? Life. Life. It's generative, right? Uh, a really, really dear friend of mine who has gone to be with the Lord now, he had this dream of becoming a missionary to Peru. He loved Jesus and he gave his life to Jesus and he wanted to be a missionary to Peru for as long as I had known him. He spoke fairly uh, fluent Spanish, which was even more amazing since he was from Arkansas. So he had a little hablo inglés twang to it. He traveled across the world. He spent time in Central America, South America. He actually served in all Hispanic church. All the songs were in Spanish. The preaching was in Spanish. The prayers, the benediction was in Spanish. It was really kind of cool to go to. He loved Hispanic people. He loved Hispanic people. When we were in seminary, he met this girl. He fell in love with her, and they got married very shortly after, like within months. It was quick. She had no intention of ever leaving America. Why would I leave this great country? She had no desire to be a missionary's wife to Peruvians. To our shock, he adjusted his life plans. He literally, he just left them in the dust and he began to replan from scratch. Now, I was much, much younger back then and when I heard what my uh, friend did, it really, it bothered me. It bothered me. I'm ashamed now of the thoughts that I had about that decision that he made. I was thinking like, how could he let, how could he do that? How could he let his wife make the decisions in the marriage? How could she divert him from what God had told them to do? 
and, and God's call on his life. I mean, he had talked about this with Vanessa and I for like years. And then they get married and that's, whoa. But later on, you know what? I changed my mind. I admitted I was wrong. I saw that I was wrong because I saw that he was obeying God. He was obeying God's word by holding fast to his wife. I'm sticking with you, come what may. And he did it in a way that was sacrificial. In a way that she could see and feel that he really meant it when he made those vows. He really meant it. Why? Because it cost him something. And from that point on, I saw that what he did, that wasn't, that wasn't wrong. That wasn't a tragedy. That was beautiful. That was beauty. They made something beautiful together. It was great. Why? They, like, because he obeyed the word of God, something beautiful was created. Get this. For both of them. Something beautiful was created for both of them to live out together. Something was created for both of them to inhabit together. They made a habitat for them both, not him, and then you come into that. Isn't that beautiful? Let's look at this, uh, this third piece, become one flesh. This means that in some way, you to meld your life into the life of your wife. This is what my friend did. In some way, you meld your life into the life of your wife so that something comes into being that didn't exist before. That's called making beauty. <laughs> Becoming one means to know your spouse completely and to allow yourself to be known by them completely. Notice a husband's first job is not to work at making his wife one with him. He is to do the work of becoming one with her, being known by her, being vulnerable with her, unguarded with her like no one else. Becoming one requires some work. Amen? Like, this is why it says, I mean, like, it takes, like, if you want to be known, you've got to be naked, right? That's what Genesis 2 says. And only then does beauty happen. And it's called kids, right? Something wasn't there, now it's there, and it's beautiful. It takes works. Husbands, you must open yourself up to your wife. I'm not saying like a hundred, like turn the dial hundred percent by tomorrow. I'm just saying turn it two millimeters, man. Two millimeters. And then two more millimeters. Does this make sense? You've got to acknowledge your emotions. Hey, guys, you're having emotions. Name that. Call that thing like Adam did by its right name. Name it in front of your wife to your wife. Acknowledge your emotions that you're having. Acknowledge the fears that you have that are actually dictating your decisions. And tell her that. It's okay for her to know that you're afraid because she's afraid too. And guess what? You get to do it together. Acknowledge that you need help being vulnerable because your dad never taught you that. He said that was sissy stuff. So tell her that. I'm trying. But I, no one showed me. I don't even know how to do that. Listen, you know what being known means? Becoming one flesh means? It, listen, it might also require repentance. I know that's way out there, but it might require repentance on your part. Repenting of seeing her as less important. Repenting of seeing her as her word isn't as valuable in this conversation. 
repenting of neglect. Your job may be crushing your wife. Repent of neglect or controlling behaviors or maybe feelings of hatred and yeah, even murder. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, right? She's not getting in your way. She's not getting in your way. She's a gift. So here's the great thing, brothers and sisters, about repentance. It often leads to repairing relationships. And guess what else? It does not require the other person's participation. <laughs> like you can repent all by yourself. It doesn't matter if, if he repents or she repents. You can do your work to God, right? You can repent of sin even if they don't want to repent. Even if they don't think they have anything to repent of. Even if they don't care that you're repenting. You can still repent. This is for you and God. For their good, right? Husbands, above all else, God says that our first responsibility is to work at becoming one with our wives. Let me put it another way. Our goal in marriage is to create something new and beautiful by knowing our wives and by being fully known by them. Little bit by little bit by little bit. And so then Jesus gives us this situation-specific application on divorce. Because he knows it doesn't always work out that way. And here it is. A wife, if a wife is sexually immoral, the husband may divorce her if he chooses and vice versa. Let me say that again. If a wife is sexually immoral, and that's a broad category, Pornia. If she commits pornea, the husband may divorce her if he chooses and vice versa. It's here in verse 32, chapter 5, verse 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman he commits adultery. So let's talk about the so-called exception clause here. Right? And Matthew records this here. Uh, Jesus seems to be saying that there is one and only one justifiable reason for a divorce, sexual immorality. But again, we need to keep in mind the historical context as well as the grammar. We've got to read these things together. Jesus is speaking to husbands in a divorce culture. We already covered that. So Jesus is giving an application to his earlier interpretation of the Mosaic law in a current real-life situation. Jesus is, Jesus is not saying that it is the only application. He's just saying this is the application in this situation. It's not the only application. Why? Because that would contradict other scriptures. I mean, you go and you look at Paul. Paul gives another scenario, and he even says, <laughs> considering the present situation. Go look it up. He's talking about a present situation. This is not just systematic theology floating in the stratosphere. It's always coming down to our real lives. So the reason Jesus does not comment on other scenarios or other situations where divorce might be permitted for a husband is because those other situations are not even a possibility. 
in a male-dominated culture under the rule of the Sanhedrin court. They're not even hypothetical. They can't happen. A wife would not be able to abandon her husband and her own children. Where would she go? Who would take her in? No one. Who could she marry? Since we just read that a husband had legal control over her wife, uh, his wife if she tried to, right? And even if that was possible, it would only be to her de detriment. I mean, the only life she could have is pretty much a prostitute. Okay? A wife would not be able to abuse her husband. He had all the power. Matter of fact, he had the backing of the Sanhedrin. Addressing that hypothetical situation would have been absolute nonsense to Matthew's original listeners. They'd be like, I don't even know what you're talking about. So Jesus isn't going to talk about those things. But a wife could commit sexual immorality in some form against her husband. Oh, yes, she could. That's a, that's a live option. That's a real thing that happened. You understand? You're hearing the logic here? That was a scenario that was based in real life. And Jesus says that is justifiable grounds for a husband to send his wife away. Why? Because she has already shown herself with her actions as an adulteress. And this divorce is merely telling the truth about the relationship now. It's not lying about the relationship. They're not in a covenant. Does that make sense? And so let's bring all that back here into modern day, modern times. There are some sinful actions, there are some long-established sinful patterns that are so destructive, they are so damaging to another human, they're so destructive to the fabric of a marriage covenant that the marriage is irreparable. It's like the difference between a really nice vase breaking and having a piece chip out. You can glue that back in and you got a vase. Versus you take the uh, vase and you run over it with a cement mixer till there's powder. You, you're not gluing that back together. You can call that a vase all you want. That ain't a vase, right? And Jesus is saying that here. Does this make sense? Jesus says that when, and this is, the, this is the situation. Jesus says that when one spouse, whether it be the husband or the wife, when they commit sexual immorality, that is ground for divorce without any guilt because it's so damaging to the other person who trusted them. Okay. Jesus is not mandating that you must now divorce them. Okay. There is a possibility of working to repair the damage over time and with a lot of effort and counseling and other things. There is a possibility, and some people have that story, and that is beauty. That is beauty. Additionally, this does not preclude a person uh, physically separating for a time for counsel, for clarity, and safety. But Jesus is declaring that you are not doing wrong. You are not being unrighteous. You're not doing wrong to your partner in divorcing them in this situation. You should feel no guilt. You can feel sad, absolutely. But you don't need to add guilt on top of that. You understand? That's what he's saying. 
And look, he's saying you are not required to work towards reconciliation with that person in this situation. You may offer that to them as a gift, but you do not owe them that. Okay? That's what he's saying. So let me try to land the plane here, okay? What if I'm sitting here and I'm listening to this message and I realize all of a sudden I come to this realization now that I've been working to make my spouse one with me instead of working to become one with her or him. I come to this realization after hearing God's word. I've done that and there's been a pattern of that and it's damaged them and it has demeaned them and What can I do? What can I do to fix that? What can I do to make that right? You know what you can do? Listen, please. You can repent today. That is what you can do. For all the things you may not be able to do, that is something you can do today. You can repent. What I mean is that you can seriously turn around. You can start making small, measurable steps toward your first responsibility that you've been lacking in and been in dereliction of duty and start going back to that first principle. Listen, you can repent. What does that mean? You admit specifically, not I might have done some things in the past that hurt you. Call it by its right name. You can name specifically where you have failed and what kind of sacrifices you intend to make, you actually want to make going forward in the relationship. That is something you can do today. I'm really putting like it right on the ground here for us, okay? But what, if, but what, Pastor Chad, if I realize that, you know what, I've divorced my spouse unbiblically. That's a done deal. I may even be remarried. And I've come to this realization of hearing God's word, and, and I, I realize, I didn't know this, but now I realize I've divorced my wife unbiblically. What can I do to fix that? You can repent as far as you're able. This is, this is the doors open for everyone. You can repent as far as you are able. What does that mean? I can't tell you that because that depends on your situation. I can't prescribe that to you. I can make some general suggestions only. That might mean that what you can do is you can work to restore dignity to your ex. Whatever that is. Okay. Restore dignity to that broken relationship and that might be by engaging in just more civil discourse when you got to meet up and exchange the kids. You're just going to say, I'm going to try to be more civil with them when they're around, regardless of how they treat me. That's a form of repenting. It might be by sending them I know, a letter of apology. You I come to this realization and I did wrong and I want to apologize to you for that wrong specifically. If that person is dead, then that might be simply apologizing to their children who are still alive, regardless of their age. Or if that's not a possibility in your situation, it might just be simply apologizing to God. But here's the good news. Please listen. Please listen. This is the good news of Jesus. No matter your situation, 
you can receive God's forgiveness in full. Listen, you do not need to live in guilt the rest of your life. You do not need to live in shame the rest of your life. That doesn't have to be put on you and that doesn't need to be yours to carry anymore. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. Listen, Jesus has committed to stick with you, cling to you, stick with you no matter what you did to your marriage or did in your marriage or in your divorce. Isn't that good news? And Christ's commitment is more than just mere words. He's done the work. He's done the hard work. He has made a costly sacrifice on your behalf and my behalf. Though you and I cheat on him, Jesus would rather die than divorce you. Isn't he good? Isn't he good? Can the church say amen? On the cross, Jesus said, if this is what it takes, if this is what it takes for me to have you and hold you, if I got to forsake my father in heaven, if I got to leave my home to have you forever as my spouse, as my bride, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I'm happy to do it for you. Listen, Jesus says on the cross, he's saying, I love you permanently. I love that line by Smokey Robinson, Tears of a Clown. He says, oh, you know, you're the permanent one. That's what Jesus is saying. How do we respond? The gospel tells us to respond by repenting. Don't think about it. Be about it. Do it. Repent. Receive forgiveness. And then rejoice. Guilt is gone. I love you. Jesus loves you. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you that you have called us your bride. Though we are, uh, we're not a clean bride. We don't come wearing white, but you said you're going to give us white dress, dress. You're going to make us white and clean like snow. Thank you that you came to betroth yourself to those of us who are adulterers and adulterers who cheat on you with things of the world. No one loves us like you have loved us. Thank you for leaving and cleaving and becoming one with us. No God is like you. Help us hear this good news. Help us, show us how each of us need to repent and to receive and to rejoice. It's in your great name we pray, amen.